0: Five, four, three, two, one. Lift
1: off of the Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. We're three quarters of the way through our first semi annual crowdfunding campaign on Patreon. I want to thank those new people who in the last week have got us closer to our first goal. It takes time and money to produce good journalism. Our first goal is a modest one, covering our basic monthly infrastructure costs. Once we reach that goal, we can move on to our second goal of having enough funds to be able to put our journalists to work more often so we can cover more of the stories the public should be aware of. If you don't know, SpaceQ is the only independent Canadian media company reporting on the space sector full-time, covering business, education, policy, science, and technology. We tell the stories that matter. We don't have a paywall. We believe everyone should have access to our reporting. So we need your support to continue to provide daily news and analysis on our website, in our newsletter, and this weekly podcast. I hope you see the value in what we do and support us. Our Patreon address is patreon.com spaceq. Some of the small rewards you could get from us include SpaceQ bookmarks and a SpaceQ mug. If you want to make an annual or one-time donation, then please contact me at mark, and that's with a C, at spaceq.ca as Patreon does not support those types of donations. Okay, now on to our guests. My guest this week is Dale Boucher, CEO of Deltion Innovations. Deltion is one of the leading proponents for space mining and has worked with the Canadian Space Agency, NASA, and others. Welcome, Dale, to the SpaceQ Podcast.
0: Yes, well, thanks for having me, Mark.
1: It's been a pleasure. Okay, you started uh, Deltion in mid 2013 after you left the Northern Center for Advanced Technology, where you had been the director—or sorry, you had been uh, the director of innovation for 18 years. Uh, can you give our audience a brief introduction as to what the motivation was to form Deltion?
0: It, when I was at Norcat, we in uh, 1999, we started working on space mining technologies with the Canadian Space Agency and Space Dev at the time, actually Jim Benson was the one that, that really got me into it um, and uh, since between 1999 and about 2013, we, we did a, a, a large number of contracts with both NASA and the Canadian Space Agency in 2013, there was a change of management, uh, there was a decision not to continue in that realm, and um, I thought that there was a good opportunity to strike out on my own. So um, myself and a number of the people that worked with me decided to form the company called Deltion.
1: Okay. Your website describes Deltion as a mining equipment design company. So your work involves more than technology for space
0: mining. Can you tell me a bit about your terrestrial work? Absolutely. So we focus uh, primarily on machines in motion. So specialty robotics uh, and, and applications. There is a mining bent to it. You know how does a, how does how do we deal with the rock, uh, terrestrially and extraterrestrially? Um, to do that, we've we've tried to plant a f- one foot firmly in the space sector and one foot firmly in the mining sector, and we we believe that um, the the best, most efficient way of of advancing technologies in either realm is to cross pollinate. So we try to take technologies or techniques or or methodologies or or um, ideas that we find uh, in or develop in the space industry, and we try to move that into the mining industry, and vice versa. We we take some of the technologies that we developed. Over the past, um, you know, twenty or so years, and and move those into the space industry. So that's kind of a long way of saying that uh, what we do is we focus on uh, drills and um, excavators and small robotics machines for the mining sector, and try and take that uh, that know-how and move that into the space mining um, arena.
1: Now. I should let our audience know that you are in Sudbury, so it gives them an idea that you are in mining territory um, I also noticed uh doing a little bit of research on your company that I think I read that you you had a contract with Health Canada. What was that
0: for so one of the things that we yeah one of the things that we do is we have um uh, a number of capabilities in terms of systems and automation and just fabrication so Health Canada came to us and said uh it was an open RFP, and and we bid on a job to design and build a um, uh, a test facility for Health Canada to. Uh, they were taking over the the testing of electric ranges and fridges and that kind of thing. So uh, so that that project was a design build uh, test station um, for them. Okay, so as our audience will have come to
1: understand, um, you're firmly based on Earth. Uh, doing lots of earth-based uh, terrestrial products, but at the same time, you're also a company that's uh, that has its uh, sights set on uh, pushing the frontier, especially in the the space mining sector. So let's talk a little bit about the spy- space mining uh, technology and the work you've been doing in that area. Can you briefly describe the work you've been doing over the you know over the last few years to prepare uh, for a mission to another planetary body?
0: Sure. Um- uh, it started as far back as 1999, and uh, when we were given a contract by the Canadian Space Agency to prove that it was possible to develop an all-electric drill that could drill through rock without the use of of coolants or uh, flushing materials. As you may know, uh, when you when you drill in rock, um, you have to cool the drill bit um, and you have to remove the the little chips of rock that are formed during the drilling process. They don't just go into the ground at the side. You actually have to get them out of the hole to do that terrestrially. They flush water and uh, lubricants down the hole. And, uh, and in fact, if you, if you noticed at the side of the highway, the simplest version of this is simply blasting air down the hole and, and, you know, moving those uh, dust and those, those small rock chips up out of the hole a little bit, tough to do when you don't have an atmosphere. So, um, so we went to the Canadian space agency and said, look, you know, we can, we can build a drill that can drill through, uh, rock and down to about two meters. And we can, uh, you know, we're not going to use oils. We're not going to use, um, any hydraulic fluids. We're not going to use coolants and it's going to be all electric. And they said, we don't believe you, but here's a bunch of money. Go do it. So we did. And uh, and then in in and that evolved over the years into various iterations of different drill types. In about 2005, NASA approached us and said, "Look, we want to go to the moon. We want to sample, uh, do some prospecting on the moon. Uh, we need a drill that will go down two meters." Um, and, and actually, they didn't even start off with a drill. They just said, "We want you to look at the excavation." how do we get the sample down from two meters below surface and uh, why don't you come down to a meeting and and we'll sit and talk about it. So we did. And at the end of the meeting, uh, they determined that the drill was the best uh, solution to to take in a sample from um, below surface. And uh, they handed us a contract to start developing that capability, that technology. And uh, that evolved into something called the Resolve Project which was a prospecting mission designed to go to the southern pole uh, or one of the poles, they weren't certain at the time, uh, looking for uh, defining the the quality and the quantity of water ice below the surface down to about a two meter depth. Uh, that project has since morphed into something called the Resource Prospector Mission and um, is now, um, I think, don't know if it's actually been been uh, allocated funds for flight, but I think it's pretty close. Okay,
1: so uh, and then uh, so that technology has been evolving over the years. I noticed that in 2016, you got a contract from the Canadian Space Agency for the percussive and rotary multi-purpose tool called Prompt. Um, also, I think that contract is coming to an end. So you've been working on it for a couple of years now. Um, how How is the work going on that, and uh, at what uh, I suppose technology readiness level is it at at this point?
0: So just to back up a little bit sure. um the in in two thousand and twelve, NASA approached the Canadian Space Agency, asked them if they wanted to participate in the the actual mission um to the moon uh, using technologies such as our drill and and the Canadian Space Agency had decided at that point in time it was not. Um, suitable for whatever reason, and so decided not to. Um, the Canadian Space Agency, however, did <clears throat> decide to advance the drilling technology uh, to a TRL-6. So they gave us a contract to uh, to evolve our technology from the TRL-4 stage it was at under the NASA Resolve um, uh, work to about a TRL-6, and we ended up testing that deep drill, that meter, meter deep drill uh, at this point in time. Uh, in a dirty thermal back chamber at NASA Glenn Research Center in 2015. Then in 2016, the Canadian Space Agency wanted to evolve a technology that could be used as a multi tool that included the ability to drill holes in, in rock take a short small sample uh, you know maybe a, a 10 centimeter long sample um, and install bolts nuts um, that kind of thing so uh, we that was an open RFP we bid on that and and we're successful on on, on uh, gaining that contract that is closing uh, literally as we speak um, we've delivered the product um, we've added some capability to it it is now at the point Where it can, it's designed to be used on the end of a robotic arm, and uh, it can be used for a a number of construction type of activities. So not just for geological exploration anymore. So, for example, um, uh, it can go and take a sample from a rock face, let's say that you know a vertical cliff wall, um, and the sample would be about the size of your little finger. Um, it can take a, a, a it can abrade away a rock surface uh, let's say you're on Mars and you're looking at weathered rock and you want to get below the weathering you can't abrade away the top surface and, and actually get down to what's called pristine rock um, it can uh, it runs on very low power um, about 100 watts so pretty much what you might have you know in your kitchen uh, running your light bulb overhead um, and uh a very low thrust. <clears throat> it, um, uh, it, it can also drill a hole in, uh, in a rock, it, uh, insert a, a bolt and, with an anchor and actually bolt itself uh, you know, bolt a, something down. So, if they, to put it in a very facetious form, we could go up and put up a coffee shop sign. Uh, you know, insert your favorite coffee name here, um, and uh, drill a hole in the rock, put the mounting plate on, uh, put the anchor in, bolt the um, the the sign in place, and uh, and kind of trundle away on on the little rover, and, and the presto, digito, we have a, a coffee shop on the moon or on Mars, or at least a sign. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um,
1: But um, so does this particular multipurpose tool, does it have terrestrial applications as well, or is it strictly designed for uh, extraterrestrial applications?
0: A very good question. Um, Because because our mandate is to try and cross-pollinate between the the terrestrial and the the space sector, uh, the short answer is yes, it has terrestrial applications. In fact, in the shop right now, we have – Two versions of of the, the prompt tool. Uh, one is being prepared for mining uh, applications, and and that is where uh, there are conditions wherein the mine geologist wants to take a sample just prior to George um, prior to. I'm trying not to get too lost up in the in the the mining terminology here, but when they when they're blasting a tunnel to to get at an ore body, they, they, it's called advancing the face. And what they typically do is they put they drop the vertical shaft down so it does not intersect the ore body, and then they tunnel over to the ore body to get at the ore body and then pull at the ore body. As they're as they're advancing, the geologist wants to know when they hit ore. And so up to this point in time, he's had a heck of a time trying to get a sample out as the face advances. And the reason, of course, is because you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater, kind of thing. You don't want to throw the gold out with the waste rock. So they want to understand, you know, what happened during the last blast. What's going to happen after this blast? And and is there a difference in the ore grade as we're as we're moving into this ore zone? So they've tried. So our little prompt tool is actually uh, being prepared to to go and robotically sample the drill face. Uh, Prior to blasting so that uh, it takes a little sample about the size of your finger off the the wall Now the, the reason it sounds really simple to do but the problem is that you've got Explosives in the area and so it's very difficult and very dangerous to put a man in there with a little rock hammer chipping away causing sparks when you've got you know a couple of tons of TNT around you so uh, that's why they want to do it robotically. So we're we're that's what we're working on. That's the direct application of Prompt into the mining industry. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it's very cool. Um, there's another application in in heavy industry um, that will be. Uh, it's going to be designed to. Um, it's all very hush hush, of course, but it's going to be designed to <clears throat> to to examine. Uh, the, the quality i I, I really can 't go into much the quality of a of a particular industrial process and prompt is an ideal solution for this. It basically removes the man from the uh, from the situation again it 's a very dangerous situation and uh, at this point in time the the process to put a man in there um, the process to put a man in there is uh, extremely dangerous, time intensive, requires a long shutdown. Um, and because of our, our background in the space industry, where we understand about thermal management, we understand about dust, we understand about um, nasty environments and about high level of, of autonomy, we can put this tool in on the end of a robotic arm. Uh, we can perform the task in less time than it takes to actually prepare the place to put a man in. Uh, as, you know, so, so we've saved probably two-thirds of the downtime already just by using this technology. All
1: right. Um, in terms of, because uh, you had said it was uh, getting to TRL level six, could you just explain to the audience what you actually mean by TRL level six? Sure.
0: So there, there are nine levels of technology readiness, which is technology readiness level TRL. And they're kind of an arbitrary uh, system, but uh, it, it goes something like this. Uh, TRL one is really literally you have a a great idea. You're you know whistling to yourself in a shower one day, and you go, "Hey, I got a great idea," um, and that that's TRL one. Um, as you advance up the TRL ladder, you become more and more um, realistic in terms of your what, what's possible, what's what's doable. So, uh, you might have to do a whole bunch of research and and uh, technology advancements, and um, just trying to figure out how to make things happen on a, in a laboratory. By the time you hit TRL three, you've basically done all the laboratory breadboarding stuff. It might be spread out over four acres of, of lab space, uh, but you've got the process figured out. Uh, TRL four then is kind of couples it all together and and tries to prove it in, in uh, you know in some kind of form, fit and function. So you've, you've got kind of the mass is not far off. You've got the volume kind of not far off your power envelope. You know, maybe it didn't quite hit the power envelope. Uh, you've got some brain stuff running on, you know, uh, brain box stuff running on maybe LabVIEW or, or something like that. TRL five. Now you're into actual environments, so you're looking at form, fit, function, and environmental capabilities. TRL six is basically you're ready to go to flight. Um, you you are just shy of actually doing a flight mission. Uh, it means that you've figured out most of the problems, you've retired most of the risks, you've got the the system is kind of right. The you know very close to the correct mass, very close to the correct volume. Uh, it's got. Uh, some capabilities in terms of uh, of handling space-like environments. Uh, it is very environment or very end application specific uh, in that uh, it, it has to be tested and shown to operate in a representative environment. So for the Moon, uh, in, in terms of the, the drilling stuff, Uh, for the moon, we have to be able to have the surface temperature down to 40 Kelvin, uh, which is like minus 170 Celsius. Um, And we have to have uh, a very hard vacuum. So, um, you know, similar to what's on the the lunar surface, we may or may not have to have some uh, cosmic radiation present to show that the system can tolerate that. Uh, We'd have to have the power, envelope matched to whatever might be uh, available in terms of, of the mission profile um, and so and then we go in and we test it and we'd say yeah yeah okay that you know that runs it runs for the, the, the two hours that it was supposed to run everything's fine we're quite happy with it and that's a TRL 6 success. TRL 7, 8 and 9 then are all flight related basically you're, you're building the rocket you're, you're launching it uh, you're operating it and once it's operated you're at TRL 9 so so that kind of gives the idea.
1: Okay. Before we go on, I need to mention our sponsor. Dale, have you ever read of any of Michio Kaku's books? Sorry, I have not. Okay. Well, here's your chance. Dr. Kaku is a theoretical physicist who co-founded string field Theory. He also happens to be a great communicator, and Penguin Random House Canada just published his newest book. Here's what it's about. We're entering a new golden age of space exploration. Moving human civilization to the stars is increasingly becoming a scientific possibility and a necessity. In his new book, The Future of Humanity, world-renowned physicist Dr. Michio Kaku explores developments in technology that may allow us to terraform and build cities on Mars and even beyond our own solar system as we search for a twin Earth Continues. The Future of Humanity is an Exhilarating Journey to a Future Among the Stars. Find your copy today wherever great books are sold. What can you tell me about your technology in particular getting onto a mission in the near future? Is this something that that, that is possible?
0: I, I think it's inevitable. Um I think that that uh, if you've read the Global Exploration Roadmap 2013 and then looked at the newest version of Global Exploration Roadmap, you'll see a little bit of a difference between the two, and the difference is primarily in uh, the insertion of in situ resource utilization into the critical path of the mission planning. <clears throat> and so, so what that means is that the space agencies around the world are driving the effort to mine in space. And, and what are they trying to mine? The space agencies are primarily looking for water right now um, as a means of supporting missions and supporting human life. Uh, they recognize that there is no possibility of bringing enough water along on a trip to Mars, for example, to keep humans alive for very long. So, um, So we have to figure out how to how to remove the water from the surface so that the humans can use it and and, and get that into the, the, you know, the environmental cycle, so to speak. So uh, that's a mining activity. <clears throat> and uh, on the other side of the coin, there are uh, private corporations, planter uh, resources, deep space industries, you know, to name just two of them, who are very focused on on mining as a profitable venture. And they're providing a little bit of a different push uh, in terms of, of of development of this of these capabilities. So that kind of all goes to say that that space mining is inevitable. It will happen. Uh, I, I've been on a couple of committees, um, th- three or four of them with with NASA, NASA led ones. Two of them were looking at the moon and what does it take to mine. The moon to extract water from the moon to support the deep space gateway Um, the the other two the other two committees were uh, mars oriented and they looked very specifically at what does it take to to mine the mars surface to provide water to the human mission to mars and both of those required uh, a suite of technologies and and the thing about mining is that it follows a uh, not quite a rigid plan, but but there is a plan in place that must be in place to, to effectively mine uh, an operation or to mine a planet, uh, an ore body. Um, it is a total fallacy for people to think that uh, you can just land anywhere on the moon um, you know, dig something out of the ground, and you've got whatever you need. Um, same with Mars. You 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 just it doesn't happen that way. You you need to understand where the uh, commodity of, of uh, de- you know that's desired. Where is that located? What? It, how is it located? What's its quality? Is it bound up with <clears throat> some nasties, chlorines, or mercury, or or sulfides? Um, is it free? Is it an ice cube? Um, and and how hard is it to get to? Is it is it situated under a a, a field of boulders the size of a house? Um, is it is it on a, you know on a plane where you can just scrape down a few few centimeters and and you've got water ice? Um, those are all questions that have to go into understanding where to do the mining and uh, how to process the material so that you are efficient. That then will drive the logistics behind setting up uh, future missions. <clears throat> so if, you, if we try and um, pigeonhole that concept, there are essentially six stages to a mining process. There's, there's a, a remote kind of identification process typically done by Satellites, um, airborne type of systems, um, where you, there is a a you begin to collect data, you analyze it, you say, okay, you know that there's a good I, there's a good chance that at this particular longitude and latitude, we've got something that we might be interested in. Very similar to what LRO and LCROSS have done for the Moon, uh, which is identify. Um, hydrogen bonds that, that may indicate water within the top two meters of, of the surface, so, primarily, primarily in the pol- polar regions.
1: So w- with that, do we have enough data right now, uh, in particular with the Moon, to say, okay, we're now planning a mission to the Moon to start testing uh, some mining equipment, uh, do we have enough of data right now as to where we should be actually going on the moon? And I'll, we'll get to Mars in a second.
0: So the, the short answer is no. Uh, the, the, the second stage of, of a mining process is close-in, close-in ore body delineation, and and this is where it differs from science. Um, it's not a pure science activity it 's really a prospecting activity they're not the same. <clears throat> science says, okay, I figured out what 's down you know in this particular spot, but I see there's something really cool over the next little bump in the in the horizon let 's go take a look at that uh, Prospecting will will d- does some very close uh analysis um so for example terrestrially typically when you're when you're looking at building a a new mine um you will drop a drill hole that goes down let's say a thousand feet um and and every 50 meters you're putting another drill hole because you're trying to understand the distribution of the ore we don't have to go down fifty meters on the moon or on Mars, we'd only have to go down three or, or ten meters, I think, on, on Mars is probably what we're we're estimating based on orbital data to to hit water. But we still have to have that close in Ground truthing of the orbital data, so it's exactly the same as what happens terrestrially. Um, you know, in 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 uh, Sudbury and, and other mining communities, there are continuous aerial surveys going on, and and they're they're mapping out various um, anomalies. And and what they then do is they send in a drill crew to to sample <clears throat> in very specific areas and take a very, um, uh, develop a grid and they take a, a, a sample, uh, analyze the samples. And then they say, okay, we kind of understand what's down there. Um, and, uh, okay, let's, 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 uh, you know, if, if it's looks like it's profitable, they'll chase it and, and, uh, do some, um, financing and then, and then actually put a mine in. So, so stage one is kind of orbital stuff. That's where we are right now. Stage two is the close-in examination, kind of improving the fidelity, improving the resolution. Uh, as you may know, you know, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has a <clears throat> pixelation in the order of, uh, you know, uh, almost a kilometer, I believe. So so how in one kilometer can you determine where the ice cube is? You can't. Um, and, and so you have to get down on the ground and actually do some close-in prospecting Looking at samples, pulling up pulling up the sample in whatever fashion that is, I believe that'll be drilling because that's, to me, that's the most energy efficient way of doing it. But uh, you pull up a sample, you analyze a sample, you say, got it, I know how much is here, I know what it looks like, I know how it's bound, uh, let's go to the next sample. And you do that over a, a, a large area. Uh, and it defines your ore body, so we 're just, we're just at that point right now where we 're just starting to think about that. Resource prospector mission was originally supposed to go to the Capeya crater, which is the impact site of El Cross and uh my understanding is that the resource prospector mission is now going somewhere else um to me that's fundamentally changed the i changed the, the 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 mission it is no longer a prospecting mission it's now returned to a science mission and to be a true prospecting mission it should return to ground truth the data we've got from L-Cross and LRO, which is the Cabeas Crater site, do some close-in drilling, understand what the bo- ore body looks like, in this case water, and, uh, uh, and then determine whether that is a viable place to extract water to support humans either in the Space Gateway or on the Moon in a long-term outpost.
1: Okay, now in terms of your stage two process, is are we talking about a robotic prospecting, or will this have to be done uh, by humans?
0: No, this 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 is done by humans terrestrially right now. Uh, but we are working with uh, mining companies to advance the robotics of that in terms of on the moon or mars it has to be done robotically um it just it just is too time intensive to actually send somebody there to watch a, a guy you know watch a, a machine drill a hole and this sh- doesn't make sense
1: and, and correct me if i'm wrong because i certainly could be on this one but are we talking about using a ground penetrating radar on this uh prospector or is it something else
0: uh, on resource prospector mission
1: or any prospecting mission like the your stage two
0: Ah, so stage two, uh, in, you can do kind of a stage one and a half, which is putting a neutron spectrometer or, or a near-infrared spectrometer uh, scanning surface and, and you know, trying to understand what's below the surface. The reality is that until you actually grab a sample of what's down there, you don't know. So you really have to do a drilling operation um, or you can do a backhoe and, and scoop um, you know down if you can get down deep enough uh, scoop up sample but you have to have a sample in hand that you can actually run through an analysis system the the remote analysis stuff just doesn't give you enough confidence that uh, of, of the quality of the material
1: so um, from everything I'm hearing and understanding uh, we're still very much in the, obviously, the early stages here. Uh, and the equipment that you're actually developing right now is actually, uh, you know, it's not drilling very deep. So uh, when it comes time to actually and to do some mining, um, we're going to need some heavy equipment, I'm assuming. Is anybody working on that side of the equation or is everybody just focused on, you know, getting some small drills going and seeing how they work and then getting samples.
0: Yeah, this, this is, there's a bit of a, of a, um, um, I guess, a difference in philosophy here. And, and one is the science-based activity. And, and uh, this is a discussion I have with my counterparts at CSA um, on, on a regular basis. And, and that is that if you're just looking at science, um that's one thing but if you're truly trying to get at what's the mining aspect then you need to think about changing the paradigm changing the the driving requirements behind developing a drill uh and then you need to change the driving requirements behind the excavation um you need to change the the driving requirements behind processing um and and people are just just are now starting to think about that stuff. Uh, Dr. Leslie Gertz, for example, at University of Missouri Rolla, uh, has looked at uh, fracturing on the Moon. So, how do you take, you know, how do you take a big rock and make it into a bunch of little rocks <clears throat> on the Moon? Um, and and that's kind of, you know, it's not intuitive. It's it's kind of interesting. When I first talked to Jim Benson about this years ago, I said, you know, Jim, I said the problem is going to be that if you if you Put a stick of dynamite under a boulder on the moon; you're liable to take out your command craft um, as it as it zips by. And he kind of went, "Oh, yeah, of course." Um, and so, there's there's a, um, a the the, the the evolution, the maturity of those thought processes is still not there um, in terms of, of the refining and, and the excavation. Some work has been done on excavator. Uh, Lockheed Martin, for example, a few years ago had a bucket drum excavator that they evolved from the Colorado School of Mines um, uh, bucket wheel, and which is now taken over by Kennedy Space Center and is now being called Razor. <clears throat> and so that's designed to harvest near surface regolith loose regolith uh, in in fairly hefty quantities um, but that's pretty much the, the state of the art I think uh, you know the drilling is not deep the is probably it's not required to go deep at this point in time um, and the the uh, excavation is not really uh, well advanced That being said <clears throat> the it is considered at this point in time that to extract, sufficient water on mars um that uh um, the chances are that we're not going to chase the water ice because that's too deep um and we don't know how to excavate that deep on mars so what we're probably going to do is end up going after a rock type called a silicate um and silicate is like a it's like a really hard clay, uh, like gypsum, for example. You know, drywall. That's 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 the kind of stuff. And so that actually has water bound in it. And so we have to figure out how to mine that stuff, which means we have to figure out how to break it apart, how to crush it, and how to get it through a processing plant. And nobody's really done that yet.
1: All right. Um, how do uh, traditional mining, uh, traditional mining industry, view your work and space mining at this point?
0: There are two two or three fields of thought. <clears throat> First one is the, the big mining companies like, you know, um, American Barrick or, or, or Goldcore or valet or Glencore or any of those guys. And those guys are primarily logistics providers. They are, they provide the logistics of getting, you know, a pound of gold, a pound of nickel out of the, out of the rock and getting it to market. And so they have very little interest at this point in time. Um, in going after a pound of gold on the moon, that the business case, I guess, is not quite there for them. Um, supplier companies, however, are totally different, <clears throat> and uh, there are a number of of supply chain companies: Atlas Copco, AbraRock, uh, Hatch, um, Bort Longyear, Caterpillar, all these supply companies that supply to the mining. Uh, industry are very interested in advancing technologies and getting involved with space mining. so you've you've kind of got on the one hand, you've got a bunch of of traditional mining companies saying, What does this have to do with the cost of nickel uh, in you know coming out of out of uh, Northern Ontario? And the other comp on the other side, the, the, the supply chain going, oh, well, this is pretty cool. I can use this to do stuff within my own corporation. So there's there's a wide range of interest, and and uh, that shows up at places like the you know uh, prospectors developers show or the Canadian Institute of Mining uh, Area General Meeting. Um, you start seeing uh, people asking very interesting questions about about space mining.
1: All right. So, yeah, this sort of leads into my next question, which is uh, this year you're once again co-organizing the ninth uh, Space Resources Roundtable and Planetary and Terrestrial Mining Sciences Symposium. Tell me a little bit about the conference, how it's evolved over the years,
0: and who goes? So it, it was um, two different conferences, of course, uh, that were joined back in, I don't know, 20, 2008, something like that. <clears throat> and they were both set up – One Space Resources Roundtable was set up to be an advocacy group to the U.S. government on space resources and the utilization of space resources. It was uh, the brainchild of a fellow by the name of Mike Duke, who was at Colorado School of Mines at the time. Um, I set up Planetary uh, Mining Sciences Symposium um, to try and connect the mining world to the space world, believing that there could be against, you know, doing this cross-pollination thing. <clears throat> Since those... Conferences were set up. We decided to join together, and one year it's uh, it's held in the Golden, Colorado. The next year it's held in conjunction with the Canadian Institute of Mining Conference Area General Meeting in Canada. And so, what we what we do is we attract the uh, ISRU folks from around the world. So these are people uh, from NASA, Canadian Space Agency, European Space Agency, Japan. Pretty much every every agency has attended. Um, who are interested in the utilization of resources on the Mars, uh, the Moon, and and asteroids. We also tend to attract some of the mining uh, groups. Some of them are suppliers like Atlas Copco or Sandvik or or Caterpillar, and some of them are just the mining companies themselves: Rio Tinto, uh, Glencore, those those kinds of folks. Um, the, the, the interest on behalf of the mining, uh, industry has changed in the last few years, um, and, uh, notably since about 2012 <clears throat> and, uh, in, in 2012 at the CIM show in Toronto, Chris Lemischke from planetary resources was on a plenary panel with uh, a number of other people and, um, uh, I think he totally astounded the audience um, in terms of, of what he was saying, and and uh, has opened the eyes that this is a potentially a, a very lucrative mining operation uh, can take place in in space. So we're we're beginning to see more of the mining industry showing up at these conferences, um, and uh, the interest is still kind of still a little bit below the radar less than exuberant but but there is interest there.
1: Hi so let's talk a little about policy here for a second. Um, in Canada uh, as been demonstrated over the last couple of years, um, the government and the governments previous to that uh, have not been adapting, to the reality of what is happening in the space sector. Uh, The regulatory frameworks that are in place now are are outdated. They need to be updated. The government's moving very slow. It's actually hurting some areas of the space sector. Um, Space mining isn't something that's there yet, but it is something that is coming. So does it not make sense to start Putting in place some policies, some frameworks that will address what will happen
0: uh, as we go forward. I think so. I think that that you know Canada is a mining juggernaut. We what we do in Canada in the mining world is emulated around the world. Um, there are due diligence processes that we've put in place. There's a, a number of regulatory regimes that we have put in place that are picked up by the world and, and are emulated. Um, and and Canada has, there's a reason why the, the metals exchange is, is situated in Toronto. Uh, Canada has a long track record in in mining capabilities and, and uh, for, it's extremely frustrating for me to sit back and watch uh, Luxembourg and and the U.S. and and even Australia, um, do take steps towards establishing space mining as a in a regulatory regime, and and watching Canada sit back and, and twiddle its thumbs and go you know and and really not move forward. I think that we're we're losing a, a golden opportunity here to to um, really enable and enhance the Canadian mining industry. Why why is it that the Canadian government,
1: and it's not just the Liberal government that's in power now, but it was also the Conservative government before them, so it really doesn't matter, you know, what political uh, stripe you're with, why is it that Canadian governments just don't seem to grasp that uh, investments in, or even, uh, not even just investments, but, you know, setting up policies uh, are beneficial to Canada and could create uh
0: jobs and uh wealth going forward. Well, I think um I think there's a, there's a couple of 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 uh of things. I think first and foremost it's how much noise is being made. Um the 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 policy is in my mind is driven by the political people and the political people respond to constituents. And if constituents don't call up their MP and say, "Hey, what the heck's going on with you know, fill in your favorite topic, um, then nothing happens uh, because it's not enough noise. And and that was clearly pointed out to me during some meetings I had on Parliament Hill over the past year or so, where, you know, I basically asked the same question. And the, what came back was, hey, you guys aren't making enough noise. Make some more noise and, and let us know it's important um, and and we can do something about it. And, and so that's part of the problem. And I would encourage your listeners to call their member of parliament. Look it up on the website, whoever your member of parliament is, and, and call them up and say, hey, you know what, I think it's important that Canada get involved with, of course, space mining. Why don't you ask the Minister uh, Baines and Minister Carr what they're doing about um, about space mining? And that's really the only question that needs to be asked by your MP. And if enough MPs do that, things will happen. And, and uh, it beca- because it becomes this noise Um, um, activity. So is there something that should be led by,
1: I mean, obviously an individual can do this, but it would certainly help, don't you think, if we had industry groups and uh, advocacy groups in Canada, uh, let's say, meet, work together towards a cohesive uh, messaging platform and then go
0: out and, and implement it? I think that um, uh, advocacy, advocacy groups definitely have a uh, – they have a loud voice with the government, um, and I think they're, they're, they're a good thing to do for, for industry. I think this goes beyond industry. Um, I think that uh, uh, you know, we, we – we, I think if we're going to progress, at least in terms of ISRU or space mining, I think we need to engage the public on, in, in general. And uh, so it it might not be somebody who's in industry. It might be an academic. Uh, It might be, um, you know, a high school student um, who's just coming of voting age and and calling up their MP and saying, look, you know what? You know, why is why is Canada as a world mining leader not involved with space mining? What the heck is going on? Um, and, And so having that general public voice, I think, is is adds to the advocacy groups that you're talking about. Okay. So uh, two more
1: questions. Um, you said uh, your current contract with the CSA is just about uh, done. Uh, do you have anything else in the pipeline uh, that's coming from the Canadian government in terms of contracts or, or is it just in the process of uh, uh, you're going to be uh, s- submitting some proposals in the near future?
0: We're in the process of uh, preparing some proposals. Um, as you know, the Canadian Space Agency has really nothing on the books in terms of, of potential missions or flights. Uh, we did have an opportunity to get back on the Resource Prospector mission. Uh, we may still have an opportunity because uh, um, the, the uh, it is not locked in stone yet as to who the providers are. We'd love to provide the drilling capability. That really takes a um, uh, you know a, a government push to do that, and, and uh, so uh, with that being said, um, the, the Canadian Space Agency is um, uh, does not the, the RFPs that I've seen come out do not tend to support the space mining activity. So they're they're very focused on Earth observation satellites and and uh, and, and more arms. Uh, uh, what about <laughs> um, the space technology
1: development program that 's been opened up to more ideas? Would you fit into that now?
0: Um, it really depends uh, that as you know when they when they send out a request for proposal, they generally have an idea of what they want um, produced and uh, there are some cap- there are some um opportunities i think that will be forthcoming um and and it just we just really have to wait and see um how it how it all evolves the csa is is uh is dr- drastically underfunded in my mind and uh you know they 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 have to do whatever they can they can't be everything to everybody i get that and that was very clear in, in the emerson report uh, you know, and, 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 but with the funding that they do have, I don't think that it's enough to, to, they basically have Canadian industry on a starvation diet and, and they don't really have enough to, to, uh, really expand their horizons and, and look for new stuff. Uh, Hi. To do. So uh, last question,
1: and I want you to get your crystal ball out, um, you know, based on our discussion, it seems that we're getting close to having the capability to have small drills and multi purpose tools that we can use on potentially the, the moon to start with. <clears throat> um, how long do you think before we see any uh, serious uh, space mining taking place? And I'm not talking about an asteroid, uh, I suppose I'm talking about something on the moon.
0: Um, I think that's going to be driven largely by the Deep Space Gateway. <clears throat> so the, the the large activity uh, mining on the Moon is for water um, and uh, that that's rec- an abs- almost an absolute requirement to support the Deep Space Gateway for any length of time. So uh, as they start building that up, um, they're going to start looking for ways to, to provide that water uh, to the Deep Space Gateway. Now what's interesting is companies like you United Launch Alliance have already uh, indicated that they are prepared to sit down and start negotiations for supplies of sixteen hundred metric tons of um, lunar derived propellant per year um, and when they name a price point, um, it puts it right in the realm of most mining industries, and the price point that they quote works out to about eight hundred million dollars a year of 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 purchased propellant on the lunar surface that's a pretty big chunk of change that that's kind of like a you know the a a, a mining a major new greenfield mining operation in borneo let's say um so that ula of course wants to use that propellant to support their their uh, lunar shuttle system, um, and and I'd encourage you to to look that one up uh, and and see what they're what they're proposing there. But basically, it's a it's a shuttle that just keeps going between Earth and Moon, Earth and Moon, Earth and Moon, and that's I guess is is uh, probably in support of the the deep space gateway as a as a transfer vehicle. But in order to do that, they want to. They have to get propellant. They want to get it from the moon, and, and they're willing to pay for it. So uh, that's kind of the first commercial market for this kind of thing. That being said, uh, in in some offline discussions I've had with with uh, folks at ULA, um, you know, they're looking at uh, starting delivery of of that kind of water within the next uh, five to ten years. So that means that the mining operation. Um, you know, has to begin. You have to begin looking at how do you mine and where do you mine. You have to start doing that within the next few years. So, uh, in order to meet that timeline, because it takes about five mi- five years to develop a mining operation.
1: Sounds like a pretty optimistic timeline to me, but we'll see. Um, yeah, I agree. <laughs> but it, it is it is encouraging to to, to see that people are. Uh, not just thinking about this, but are actually coming up with the business cases and uh, trying to make those business cases work. All right. Uh, Dale, uh, thank you uh, for being my guest on, on the SpaceCube podcast. Uh, I hope uh, we'll get you on in the future because uh, uh, you certainly have the knowledge in this area and uh, I can hopefully see Canada being a part of whatever happens in the future.
0: Well, thanks very much for having me, Mark. And I would encourage you to call your MP as soon as you hang up. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Mark.
1: Well, that's a wrap on this episode of the SpaceQ podcast. If you like this show, please support us on Patreon. The address is patreon.com slash SpaceQ. We really appreciate feedback. And to help us we ask you consider to write a review on apple podcast or google play music if you're so inclined if you have any comments on this episode you can email me at podcast at spaceq.ca or you can post them on our website at spaceq.ca where you'll find an archive of each episode if you send me a comment by email i'll write back to you as soon as i can on twitter you can follow us at Canada in Space. And if you use Facebook, you can find all our articles and links to the podcast on our page, The Space Q. If you like the show, please subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app.